Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here are your co-hosts, Shenandoah Connor and Barron's Hall of Fame top advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Welcome everyone to the podcast. I am your host, Shenandoah Connor, and here hosting with me is Jonathan Cutton, Barron's Hall of Fame advisor. If you want to say hi, Jonathan. Absolutely. Hey, Shen, happy to be here today. Sun is shining and um, really excited to have our guest here that I know uh, you're going to introduce for us. Yes. Our guest today is Dustin Mangon. Am I pronouncing that right? I keep pronouncing your last name. Okay, I, I realized that the other day I heard you say it and I realized I was pronouncing it wrong this whole time, uh, which is terrible because he is actually a client of mine and I should know better by now. But um, I think with a name like Shenandoah, I, I get to do it to somebody else every now and then too. So <laughs> it's just fair totally enough. fair. But Dustin is with PPC Loan and he is heavily involved in the financial advisor space and really works closely with financial advisors to help them grow their practices in a number of ways. I got connected to him through um, another client of mine who also does a lot of work with him, Key Management Group, and they um, have been doing business together for a very long time, especially on the successions and acquisitions piece. And one of the things I really love about Dustin when I first got connected with him is I've been doing this for a while. I've been in the lending space for a while and been in the financial services space And I've actually been learning a lot from Dustin and he's got some really interesting ways of getting deals done in a way that is still really sound. And so I just wanted to bring him on board and and have him help our listeners kind of learn some uh, other ways that they could grow their practices. So Dustin, if you want to give us a quick little introduction about who you are and who PPC Loan is. Sure. Thanks, John. Thanks, Shenandoah. Um, PPC Loan is a Cash flow lending, uh, or let's put this way, we focus our efforts on providing cash flow based solutions to service sector businesses. Uh, PBC was established in 1998. Our focus was always, or started out working with dentists, veterinarians, and over time we've expanded into different verticals, which might include insurance, um, CPAs, and most importantly, investment advisors. The PPC took its first shot at lending to investment advisors in late 07 after a few years of developing our program. Um, unfortunately, the timing wasn't great considering we had done a few loans into early 2008, right before the financial crisis set in. So we used that as an opportunity to kind of do some extra due diligence on the program that we really didn't do prior to the financial crisis because none of us building this program had experienced such a significant market drop. Well, this allowed us to really get a better understanding of the advisory space and how we wanted to develop our program. So since 2013, we've been actively lending to independent investment advisors. Um, and that includes you know, anyone in the RIA space, the independent broker dealer channel, and even sometimes helping advisors and their clients transition between channels. So um, going on 20 years now, we have just surpassed 2 billion in total fundings um, across a variety of verticals and you know really excited about what lies ahead especially in the advisory space. Excellent. Yeah, and I know some of the things we've talked about and this is something I, I kind of want to start us off and I, I I know you're not only involved in acquisitions but 
over that, you know, 12 plus years when you really got heavily involved in this space, how has the acquisition landscape evolved? You know, I think that's one of the, the unique things about this space and it, it's the pace at which it's evolved. When we entered the market back in 2013, it was primarily us and one other SBA lender. And over the last, I guess going on seven, eight years now, uh, we've seen a variety of options enter the market. And that could include other specialty lenders like ourselves who realize either the, the consistent source of recurring revenues and its ability to repay debt is something that offsets the risk of not having tangible assets as collateral. But one thing that I think's really expanded or, or caused the M&A market to kind of explode, and I think there's a lot of room for growth, is not just specialty lenders like ourselves, but the variety of capital options in the market. You know, that's ourselves. You've got platform providers like um, a dynasty, or you've got roll-ups, aggregators. You've even got capital options through broker-dealers who have programs now. And then... You know, what I think a lot of people don't realize is sometimes the seller is a good source of capital um, in terms of the financing they offer. Because what we see is a lot of financial advisors who enter retirement or planning to enter retirement are doing so on the back end of a very successful career. And what that results in a lot of times is not the need to cash out the equity in their business, but it's kind of icing on the cake, realizing that there's a lot of value there and they'll they're able to annuitize that by seller financing. So I jokingly tell a lot of people that you know, it's not the other specialty lenders I have to worry about all the time. A lot, sometimes it's the sellers because they're able to provide some, some seller financing that might be very competitive and, and you know, very enticing if you don't have to deal with the lenders. So we've really seen an explosion of options for selling advisors, which I think is really um, leading to the growth in the number of M&A deals. And then you also have, I think, moving forward, a situation where the aging advisor force is going to continue to be a topic of discussion. You know, that was something we thought would fuel M&A over the next 10 years, starting in 2013. But what we learned, too, is that a lot of advisors decided, I'm just going to kind of sit back. I've got a good team in place. Why sell? You know, if I can make a really nice, stable income, work one, two, three days a week, I don't really need to worry about selling. Um, but one thing that it doesn't change over time is people age. And going from 2008 to today, we've added another 12 years onto that for a lot of advisors who've just been sitting back. So I think the realization that, you know, one, we need to plan for retirement, um, and two, we have an added level of risk here, and that's a pandemic that may be impactful to older aging advisors. So I think the, the fueled M&A growth we saw over the last 12 years is only going to accelerate for the next five to 10 years with everything going on. Yeah, Dustin, well, well said. You know, one, one of the things, two things I wanted to share, one was um, you brought back some flashbacks. I got, I got some uh, butterflies in my stomach when you talked about 2007, 2008, because um, I'm thinking back, I did a pretty large acquisition in my own financial planning practice back then. And uh, it was a tough time uh, with the markets going down. And um, so just wanted to share that as you were saying it, uh, it kind of uh, made my, my stomach drop a little bit. It was not a pleasant time, but the good news is uh, if I look back now, 
Um, it was probably the best acquisition I ever did based on the relationships that we actually built with the clients, helping them, uh, you know, go through that difficult time. You know, and the other piece, you know, that I thought was interesting was, you know, you're sharing uh, about seller financing and you probably don't remember this, but um, I was trying to think, you and I have kind of known each other. It's got to be going on maybe eight or 10 years, somewhere along those lines. Um, I remember talking to you about a deal that we did wind up acquiring. Um, we, we wound up um, not using your firm at the time for financing uh, for that very reason. You kind of whispered and put something in my ear um, about having the seller finance it. Um, and that that was a possibility. I think we were kind of stretching loan limits a little bit. And uh, it turned out uh, at the time he was super open to that and uh, liked the interest rate, uh, et cetera. So um, I share that because I've always found you um, to be more than the quote unquote kind of loan guy, if you will, when it comes to buying businesses. But I think you do a great job and have always been supportive of kind of playing a consultant uh, role and, you know, being involved in so many transactions. Uh, I, I always like to say the old saying, you don't know what you don't know, right? So sure. you know, I'm sure you've been, you know, how many, how many transactions do you think you've been involved in over the years? In the advisory side, that's a good question. We're, I mean, we've got to be pushing, you know, I'm guessing four to 500 now, an actual total number of fundings. And what I, I think people forget is, yeah, that comes with probably double or double that amount in terms of deals we've evaluated that either didn't get done. We've done preliminary reviews um, because as you mentioned on the consultative side, one thing I try to get some of my buyers to do because a lot of them will call and want information. Hey, I'm looking at a deal. Just help me understand what to expect from a lender. You know, we can really do a lot of front end work that, helps those individuals negotiate better deals because one of the worst things I've seen buyers do and it burns goodwill with the sellers is negotiate a deal they can't support. So you go in and, and you make this excessive offer. Maybe you assume all the risk only to find out that the lenders, maybe it's because of the current state of the market and the uncertainty around a pandemic, or it could be a variety of other reasons, but you find a lender has limitations. Maybe it's, we require a 25% seller financing on every deal or a 10% capital injection, or we have limitations on the lendable amount based on a percentage of evaluation because you do see valuations as starting points for discussion and sometimes prices go above that mark. So what happens is I tell people, let us pre-qualify a need in advance because the last thing you want to do is burn up the goodwill you've built with the seller. It's hard enough to find good sellers in this market or good deals because there's so many buyers and competition so high. And the last thing you want to do is get to the finish line only to find out, again, you've negotiated a transaction that you can't ultimately support because you don't have the capital. So working with clients in advance has been something where it helps them learn, it helps us learn. And as they go out and search for different opportunities, they know what to expect and they're more confident in approaching sellers and starting those discussions about you know, taking over as the successor, or ultimately acquiring a business down the road. 
Well, and something I'll add on that point too is a lot of advisors, again, they, they negotiate the deal, they do all this front end thing and thinking that they can just go to any old lender to get a loan. And they quickly learn that even though they might have a deposit relationship with a bank, that lender is not um, knowledgeable enough about the industry and where the value comes from in a practice to be able to do the deal or they're not comfortable taking that risk. Um, I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit, but basically not all lenders are created equal, but especially when it comes to financial advisor loans. Well, if anyone's ever approached their traditional bank or their local bank where they have their business depository relationship, you know you're speaking another language most of the time when you come or approach them to borrow money for an acquisition because the core focus of most traditional banks is tangible collateral. So I, use, I like to use real estate as an obvious example, especially when clients will ask, what happens in the event of default? I would tell you, and this might be a surprising answer, is I don't have a specific answer for that when it comes to investment advisors. If I was lending you money to buy a home or a commercial building and you've defaulted, I can take that building, I can take that home and the market value is not gonna change whether it's owned by the bank or owned by you. So there's an asset that backs that loan. But in the advisory space, you know, after seven to eight years of lending, we haven't had any problem loans, um, knock on wood. But I think the big picture here is in a default situation. You know, we understand that you know, the, the value of these businesses is goodwill. And the true asset is the individual or the team that has the relationships with the clients and can generate the necessary revenues to repay us. So approaching your local bank, trying to get cap financing against a business with no tangible assets, a lot of times is a dead end. And for us, understanding the business and focus solely on these types of industries you know that you're not going to get hung up on the back end. And that's where a lot of people run into the problems is you can talk to a lender who might say, well, yeah, I think we can get this done. And you find out six to eight weeks later, they can't. If I can't get a deal done, you're going to find out in probably 24 to 48 hours. Once you start sending this information, you could even find out on the front end, the first phone call. But again, if there's something we find in evaluating or doing our preliminary review, you're going to learn real quickly that this is a deal we can qualify, looks good, or probably not a deal we can get done. And that's going to help you move on to a new potential capital source or, you know, talk to the seller about the problems that you're running into quickly versus saying, you know, Hey, I know we've been working on this for two months, Mr. Seller, but looks like um, I'm at a dead end and I'm going to have to start over with another lender. And it's just another area where you can kind of burn that goodwill and potentially lose the deal. Yeah, great, great points, Dustin. Um, you know, we, we've done or I've done within my own business um, probably north of 25 acquisitions. And, um, you know, one of the things that you were saying kind of made me think about it, which is I think every kind of transition or transaction uh, starts with the seller um, ultimately looking for the right fit, right? And so is fit and price are, are you know, are the two key components here. Um, and what I found is we found as a practice, it's fairly easy to check that fit box, right? If you're an advisor listening in, chances are you run a good business and 
you, you know, you do good work for clients and you care about your clients and have a, a good service model, all that kind of good stuff. Um, it's the economics that usually, right, start to go sideways. So I couldn't agree more with you. You know, one of our keys to success, I think, um, it has been getting ahead of it as soon as there's a potential opportunity to really look to get an idea of where, you know, where we stand from a being able to finance a deal so that when you do put a deal forward or an offer forward, it's something that you can execute on because once you, once you put something out there to the seller, um, if, if you then try to adjust that because of financing or further due diligence even, um, I find it starts to really hurt credibility um, and spooks that seller many times. And, and, and I've seen deals go sideways that way. One of the clarifying questions that I would ask, and I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I will, <laughs> um, <laughs> is uh, from, a, from a cash flow lender perspective, maybe you could talk a little bit um, about what it is you look for um, as a lender and kind of some parameters. Obviously, every deal is different. Um, but is there a certain amount of free cash flow you're looking for to support loans? Maybe you could give our listeners a little bit of a uh, kind of a gauge to, to get, get uh, started with. Sure. Uh, you know, you'll hear the traditional um, kind of three C's, character cash flow credit. But I think there's an important piece here. Um, cash flow being cash flow lenders, obviously most important. And the reason that we want to build a cushion, the likely that, I guess the easiest way to explain it from a cash flow cushion is you know, after the overhead's paid, after the owner can draw sufficient wage to cover their day-to-day -day living expenses, their personal liabilities, we want to know that there's typically a $1.60 or $1.70 to every dollar of debt. So you've got a debt service coverage ratio of about 1.6. 1.7 to 1 on the loan end. In the insurance space, and I'm going to use this as an example, um, thinking of property and casualty, we have debt service coverage minimums of 1.3. The difference is the ebb and flows of the market is far less impactful on the profitability of these businesses. Whereas an advisor's business, most people have, have given us feedback and we've learned a lot over the last six to seven months that, and we knew this coming into it, but we've heard that typically a 30, 40% market drop is gonna be about a 15 or 50% of that is gonna be the hit to revenues. So if it's 30 to 40% in the market, most people would say we're gonna see revenues drop by 15 to 20%. So that cash flow is king because most of the time in advisor's business, the biggest and most important piece of that puzzle is the team and the employees and those fixed costs associated with that staffing expense. So it's not so easy in a time like this to be able to just go in and cut expenses to say, okay, well, if revenues are down by 15%, I can probably cut enough to where the profitability stays about the same in terms of the dollar amount. No, it's likely going to be closer to a dollar for dollar hit to the bottom line for a lot of firms and a lot of uh, advisors. So cash flow is obviously important. Those are the kind of debt service coverage ratios we looked at. But what we've also learned in the last 20 years is take out the kind of credit picture. It's the personal financial strength of a borrower. 
that really you know, can one impact the success of a loan in bad times because lending to someone with very little liquidity, uh, unlimited net worth and tight cash flows doesn't give them a lot of room for error. So that personal financial strength when you're looking at liquidity and what you're kind of representing is someone's ability to live within their means. When you show signs of that, it's an automatic red flag for a lender like myself because I've, I've seen plenty of clients all across all industries where they've had an average of half a million in income over the last three years with nothing to show for it, but excessive amounts of debt in the form of homes, cars, credit cards, and unpaid taxes, which is an automatic declination. And, and that kind of feeds the character thing. You know, what gets people in trouble? What causes loans to go bad? It's historically hasn't been their inability to run the business. It's a character issue that Character problems create financial problems. Character problems result in divorces. Character problems result in drugs and alcohol. You know, it's these weird little nuances that you can't underwrite, but ideally the individual applying for financing has painted a picture that says, hey, this one-off is a very unlikely scenario. So those are kind of the big things for us. It's, it's the cash flow, making sure, sure there's a sufficient cushion um, so it's obviously helpful when a buyer is of equal or greater size to that of a seller for the purposes of cash flow. And then the individual, you know, there will be lenders and in, in the market that pay less attention to that. Um, but most of the time that's probably an SBA type lender because they've got a little backstop there that a conventional lender like myself doesn't have. Makes sense. Uh -huh. Thanks for, uh, thanks for clarifying. Yeah, no, I think that's all great in terms of just understanding what they need to have in play when they're coming to the table. And, um, you know, I think we've painted a pretty good picture on the acquisition side, but I want to go back to something you said earlier about, and, and we're all seeing this, that advisors are staying in play long past the quote unquote typical retirement age. They want to continue working for a number of reasons, but maybe they either want to scale back and are looking at restructuring their firm, or we have a lot that are actually looking at leaving a legacy and they're trying to think of what does that look like? What does that practice look like, you know, beyond their leadership and in terms of bringing on another generation of leaders into the practice. And I know you're heavily involved in this, Dustin, with what you call your next gen leadership. You want to touch on that for us? Yeah, I think there's an, there's an opportunity here that I think gets missed by let's call them practitioners, the guy who kind of run the practice might, might be with the help of an assistant, but at some point, point you're gonna reach capacity. Um, so bringing on that next generation to take the next level of, or help with the next level of growth can be beneficial or you may already have that team in place. But one thing I hear a lot is you get this differentiation between organic and inorganic growth. Organic growth, people naturally think of marketing, client referrals, um, just the traditional ways of, of growing the firm. And then you have inorganic growth, which is your M&A. But on the organic growth, I think one thing gets overlooked a lot of times, and that is the next generation of leadership. Because I've talked to advisors who have been working at a firm for five or 10 years, and early on in the career, maybe over the last few years, they've been given an indication that they're in line to potentially take over or buy part of the business. 
only to find out a few years later that the individuals changed their mind or they were looking elsewhere. And I think what happens within a business is, is you, you forget that there's motivation there in terms of being an owner of the business, being a partner in the business. You know, some of these individuals will say, well, yeah, I'm really going to, um, I've got assets lined up and potential clients, but until I know that I get a piece of the pie, I'm not really putting in that extra effort. And if you've got some potential leaders in place that can take over the business, you've got that next generation who's showing signs of, of really being the people that can step up and take over the business, sometimes incentivizing them early, not saying, okay, well, I'm going to sell in 10 years and I'm going to sell you hundred percent of the business and hopefully you can afford it, but incentivizing them earlier through buying equity, you know, becoming a 5% owner of the business, becoming a 10% owner of the business. Uh, honestly, I can relate to this. I went through it myself back in 2017, you know, helping grow this program. And it does, it changes the mindset sometimes to know that, okay, I am appreciated. I've been given the opportunity. And there's a level of growth, I think, that could be missed by not, you know, one, giving them the opportunity assuming those individuals are prepared to step into that position. Um, but also, you know, it's the, the old, well, you know, if I'm making, producing a million today and making 500,000, I'm going to have to spend 200,000 of that to bring on the next generation. Okay. Maybe that's the case and maybe you have to cut your income, but what if you're able to double the value of your business over the next five to seven years, because you did train them, did incentivize them through ownership. So it doesn't have to be an all or none, especially if you're an advisor wanting to stay in the business, keep good talent around. You know, look at bringing on those partners because it doesn't always have to be a, a partnership in form of management decisions. It could be simply profit sharing. There's a difference between getting production-based salaries versus profit-based salaries or profit-based income. So you could have the base income they earn today, but time to the profits of the company and make them start thinking like an owner. They don't have to have any, again, role in making those mismanagement decisions. And, you know, there's probably a lot of uh, language you could have put agreement that would allow you to buy out that profit interest if they weren't meeting expectations. So leveraging the next generation, not just to take over the firm one day, but grow the firm now, it could involve tying them in to the long-term success of the firm versus waiting another five or 10 years. Yeah, Dustin, big, big part of my model uh, in my practice is, is exactly what you described. I think you might know that. So um, I think career track, when you talk about developing next gen advisors, um, becomes really important. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. When, when you can develop folks in your organization, show them a career path that ultimately uh, allows them to participate in some of the profits either of the business they run themselves, the vertical they run within your organization or the entire organization, uh, and then ultimately help from an equity perspective as well, um, then tie them into equity. Um, having someone like yourself um, to help finance that transaction uh, works really, really well because usually that next gen advisor uh, doesn't has, have his or own his or her own uh, capital. You know, so I have a, a friend of mine, a business colleague that 
Shen, I think you and I uh, talked about getting on the podcast at some point. His name is Paul Latham. Uh, so this is stolen from Paul, uh, who, who's uh, an English guy, by the way. Um, so I'll ask you this question, Shen. Um, if, you if you wanted to make bacon and eggs for breakfast in the morning, what two animals do you need? You need a chicken and a pig. You need a chicken and a pig. Good. Um, so who's more committed to the process, the chicken or the pig? Well, the pig, because the chicken can keep making more eggs. You got it. And the, and the pig has to give the ultimate sacrifice, right? The pig's got to give his or her life, right, to make that darn bacon that's so delicious, especially when it's a little extra crispy, right? So, you know, the reason I share that, Dustin, you know, when you're when you're talking about kind of these internal transactions and uh, helping juniors achieve equity positions within a firm, um, I think about it, about bacon and egg and chicken and pigs, right? So you're absolutely right. Once that advisor actually has a piece of the ownership of the organization, he or she feels a lot different, right? And they, they start to behave um, more so like a pig. And the trick is, um, you probably don't want to sell a piece of the equity of your firm to a chicken, right? Chickens are employees at the end of the day and eggs are folk, uh, eggs, uh, pigs, I should say, uh, are folks that you want to be partners uh, within your firm. So I thought I'd set, set, tell a little, a little children's book while we're at it as well. <laughs> and yeah. one of the rare times where it would be a compliment to be called a pig, I think too. <laughs> uh, well, I'll say, you know, one thing that I talk about a lot with people too and I'm seeing this, you know, as markets grow and you hear about industry consolidation and, you know, generally maybe the average size of an independent advisor becomes larger. It's the affordability thing that's really difficult. I mean, just if you're using these average revenue multiples, just as a point of discussion, two and a half to three times, I mean, a million dollars in, in revenue all of a sudden could sell for two and a half to three million. If you're in your mid to late 30s and you have to buy 100% of that and you have no equity, you probably don't have the cash to put the down payment down. Um, let's say you can find a lender who will do it without a down payment. Well, you probably don't have a lot of personal cushion there if things go south or the markets drop and profits compress 10, 15, 20%. So this long-term plan of even letting them build some debt-free equity can be the difference in you, the seller, getting a, a lot bigger lump sum payment in cash when you ultimately do sell the business. Because a lender who is financing a next-gen advisor that has no equity and buying 100% is much more difficult than, say, a partner with 25% debt-free buying out the 75% partner. You know, what we've also been able to see as a lender is that that individual has played an active role in how the business has performed over the last three, five, maybe even five to 10 years, depending on how, how deep you're digging. So for us, hey, we, we now have a proven asset that we're lending to, although you know, we're financing 100% of a 75% buyout. From what we know, you know, the selling advisor's working in the business one or two days a week. This individual has been kind of passed the reins to manage the staff, manage the operations. And that person has moved beyond advisor to business owner or practitioner to business owner and is doing a little less in terms of client facing meetings and spending more time running the business. So those things are all important too. 
And it just better positions those individuals when that final buyout or ultimately purchase of that business takes place. Yeah, it just leads to an overall smoother transition for everybody, but especially the clients, because client attrition is one of the biggest issues I know that people are concerned about. Um, I get because that's where the value is, is in that goodwill. You want to maintain that as much as possible. And if you really are being intentional about it and uh, you know, you're able to do it over time. It just strengthens the practice overall and, and just leads to a better transition. Yeah, for, um, the, for the next gen advisors listening in, um, you know, just a thought, don't, don't tell your senior advisor that it came from me, by the way, but, um, you know, uh, the, the, the advisor who might be the older advisor who's been around for a long time that um, hasn't exactly figured how he or she will exit out of the business, might have some plans, but haven't thought it through. Um, they'd likely be really appreciative if you, as the next-gen advisor, um, help them figure some of this stuff out. Because sometimes they just don't know it exists, right? They don't understand all the financing options and that folks like Dustin and PPC exist. Um, so, you know, sometimes... I could, I could talk about it um, at the very young age of 47. I feel like I still am kind of one of the old guys here uh, in the industry these days. But I could tell you if one of my juniors came into my office um, with a fully kind of planned out strategy about how he or she could currently or in the future buy equity uh, in the firm and you know, with a plan of how they expect to do it, how the financing would work, had it lined up along with some tangible kind of, um, you know, uh, results that they'll bring to the table over the next year, two, three, five, et cetera. Um, I'd be really impressed, right, as the, as the senior advisor. So it, it shouldn't always have to be your quote unquote senior advisor coming to you as a junior uh, and saying, here's the deal, right? Sometimes if you plan it out for them, uh, they might be shocked at how you can come to the table with some capital uh, and a kind of, kind of fully planned out execution strategy. And I think, I think that's point, a great, go ahead, Shane. Oh, well, I was just gonna say, I think too, like really emphasizing that point you made, Jonathan, about tying it to the results. What is that benefit going to be to the practice? But then what is that benefit gonna be to the financial advisor, the senior advisor? Um, because you always wanna point it back to what's in it for them. And making sure it's not just about you and and what you know you're trying to get out of it, but really you've got to tie that to the organizational goals as well as the goals of the the financial advisor who's either looking to retire in a few years or looking to maybe enjoy life a little bit more now. Um, but Dustin, what were you going to say? Well, I think John, you know, you make a really good point too because there's probably a lot of older advisors who are five to ten years from retirement, and the fact that no one has approached them with this idea or desire is the reason they look externally. It's, you, know, you haven't shown the initiative or the leadership to come forward and step up. They're just kind of waiting for it to be handed to them. And that was something I learned in my position was, I, can go, I mean, what's the worst that happens? They tell me no, and then I at least know my career path. But if you can't you know, articulate why there's value that you can add, um, or you just flat out don't think it's the right way to go, you might be missing out 
on a lot of opportunity there. So I think that's a really good thing to point out that, that people don't, that younger generation doesn't realize that the next generation advisor sometimes is, well, he hasn't made mention that he's looking to sell anytime soon. Well, maybe that's because he's waiting on you to step up and, and ask about those opportunities and what you need to do to put yourself in a position to become a partner. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Dustin. Two of the last five acquisitions I did um, came along with junior advisors. Um, when I say junior, that had been in the industry for 15 years, right? Junior to uh, the seller. Uh, and in all cases, they were retained um, on my team. And I actually tied them into the equity of the transaction in one of those two cases, right? Because uh, the advisor was ready. Uh, and, and should have ultimately been uh, the recipient of the practice. Um, that's what made me think of it is that particular advisor um, didn't know how to do it. They didn't think they could get the capital. They didn't think that, you know, that they can actually get the financing. They weren't concerned about their ability to serve the clients and run the business because they had been doing that for years, right? So for the younger, you know, next-gen advisors listening in, don't underestimate right the financials of a business generally support the multiples that you would need to pay so i think as you said earlier dustin if you live conservatively and kind of practice what we all preach as financial advisors and live beneath your means and build your net worth some and don't take on too much personal debt at least not the bad type right a home etc is is fine um, you, you set yourself up so that when that opportunity presents itself, you can actually execute. Yeah, I think one thing to, uh, to kind of as a qualifier here, and when we do talk next gen and junior advisors, a lot of times that's not individuals in their 20s and 30s. You know, those are, there's a lot of people in their 40s who just like you mentioned, been in the business 15 to 20 years and the founding partner partners are in their 70s. So you know, this, this doesn't just have to be those. And for those individuals who've been there that long, it makes it that much easier for a lender. You know, we've seen the, how you've grown in your roles within the firm. You're able to kind of highlight your involvement and in, in not just client facing activities, but working with management. So I think it's important to, to point out that, you know, if you're listening, um, the next generation again can really range from, you know, probably in the advisory space, late 20s, early 30s, all the way into late 40s, early 50s for some. Couldn't yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I know we've got just a few minutes left, so I kind of wanted to wrap it up by um, getting some insight from you. You know, if we've got a, a financial advisor out there who's looking at their options, what are some things they should consider or look for when they're looking at their, their capital options and, and specifically looking at what lending um, options might be out there? What, what are some questions they need to ask and things they should look for? Well, I think one of the things, and this works, I use mortgages as a good example. It's easy to go seek out mortgages and you look for really one thing, rate. Outside of rate, the fees, the process, the requirements, all of those little nuances are pretty much the same across the board. So while it's easy to latch on to, I talked to three lenders, this is the lowest rate, you'll understand what that offering looks like as a package deal. Um, I may not be the cheapest lender in the market at times, but when you add in the fees associated with some of the loans and the um, closing costs, 
covenants. That might be debt service covenants, revenue covenants. There could be collateral requirements outside of the business. That could be your home, um, down payment requirements, prepayment penalties. There's also some that have account requirements that you require to keep three to six months on reserve. So if you do miss a payment, that reserve's built in. So when you start thinking about this package deal, I think it's important to do your research just like you would. You, you, when you go in to buy a practice, you're not just saying, well, it's, it's a two times multiple, so this is a great deal. It could be a terrible deal, only to find out that 90% of the business was commission-based and 80% um, of the clients are over the age of 80. You know, two times may not sound like that great of a deal anymore, but you've got focused on one little piece of the puzzle. So one, understand what the packaged offering looks like. And two, you've got to think about your long-term plans. This may be your first acquisition. It may be your 10th acquisition. But for those that are entering into their first acquisition, it's likely going to be something they want to do again. Um, especially if it goes smoothly, they're able to see immediate growth and profitability or income available to them with this acquisition. So think about who you're working with in terms of them being a long-term capital partner. Um, our focus has always been you know, working with a fewer number of advisors, but being a consistent ongoing source of capital. The last thing I want to do is have a discussion with somebody about their long-term plans and know that well, I can likely help with the first deal. I'm going to get that done. and I'll just worry about telling them no down the road if they come back with more money. I want to set appropriate expectations on what we're able to do, how we're going to support you long-term. So find someone who can be an ongoing capital partner because, you know, even in the midst of everything going on right now, you've probably heard that you can go borrow money. If you do an SBA loan, you get six months of no payments. Um, that ends here, I think, at the end of next month. But that sounds enticing. And one would think that, why would anybody consider anything else right now? Well, again, it's, it's all the other covenants and nuances associated with those loans that sometimes offset that. So when you're thinking about the lenders, do your due diligence. You know, don't settle on one after one phone call. Um, I think a lot of lenders in this market, there's a lot of good ones. You So, Sometimes working with two or three from a competitive standpoint only benefits the end borrower. I think John can relate to this. I mean, you know, he and I have talked about various things before. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, there's, there's advisors who want to work with good lenders and there's lenders who want to work with good advisors and, and they'll price that accordingly. So do your due diligence and find out what the big picture looks like. Because again, just making a decision based on rate could be more impactful long-term when you find out I've got a second opportunity, this can't, bank can't help me. Now I've got to move the relationship. Um, how does that work with paying off the old lender? What happened? There's just so many things that can happen long-term that I think people forget to realize. And you know, again, if you're, if you're thinking about a 25 to 50, 50 basis point difference in rate, which can be substantial, you know, that could be offset pretty easily if you've, you've applied with the lender or funded a loan with a lender who has a 10% prepayment penalty in the first year or two. If they can't help your second deal, well, you're going to pay 10% to pay that loan off plus the costs associated with the new lender. I can tell you those interest, uh, interest savings over the first year or two have probably been wiped out by having to deal with something like that. So 
Do that due diligence just as you would when you're seeking out an acquisition target, just as you would when you're you know, hiring uh, the next generation. You know, understand all the, the pieces and understand the requirements, the covenants, the terms, and I think you'll find that there's some really good long-term partners out there. As they say, uh, measure twice, cut once, right? So I, I think you're right. That, you know, the devil is uh, is always in the details, so to speak. So uh, I think that's good, sound advice. So Sean, I'll kind of, you know, turn it back over to you to, to kind of wrap things up here. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dustin. I think you've really enlightened our audience um, to the opportunities that are out there for growth and to access capital. Uh, where can they find you online if they've got more questions or want to learn more? So you can access a lot of good information about us through one through the website, which is just pbcloan.com. Um, you can go specifically to our investment advisor website. where We've been um, working on a variety of things, as Shenandoah is aware, um, in terms of just different insights on various topics in the market. You can learn about our programs there, follow us on LinkedIn, um, or just email me at any time, again, that, that consultative approach means that we spend a lot of time on the phone with people who may never have a financing need or just want to learn about the market, about the lending options. So please feel free to call or email at any time you know, if you have questions or just want to bounce some ideas off of us. And I'll include that information in the show notes. So we'll put the link to the website there. I'm also going to put links to the cut sheets for the different loan programs that we've talked about today, the next gen and the acquisitions, growth loans, um, and then your contact information as well. So um, hopefully you don't get too many emails in your inbox and you can handle them all, but we'll make sure that we get that information out there. So thank you so much, Dustin, for coming on board. I think we probably will have you back again some time to talk about um, risk and some other topics, especially as the M&A space continues to evolve. And uh, Jonathan, any closing comments before I wrap us up? No, Dustin, thank you for your time. As always, um, very informative and um, you know, look forward to having you back again soon. Yeah, thanks, Shindo. Thanks, John. Enjoyed it. Great. Well, thank you, everyone. Y'all have a wonderful week. We look forward to uh, having you back here next week with our next topic. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.